Hey, everybody. Thank you for checking out the Broke Down Podcast. My name is Jonathan. I am your host, and this is episode 116, I think. Is anyone checking my work out there? Math is for computers and employees, and I am not a computer, and I have no employees. So marginal accuracy is the best we can expect where numbers are concerned. Anyways, I have a great guest today. Jeremy Hurwitz is with me. He releases music under the name Rootless, and his music is terrific. I had the privilege of seeing him play about a month ago now, and it was a great show with Seawind of Battery and PJ Terraplane uh, in Washington, D.C. Really, really cool stuff. We spoke soon after the show, and I think it's a pretty good chat. We'll get down with that in just a minute. I should, as usual, remind you that the Broke Down Podcast is a founding community podcast of Osiris. Osiris Media is producing great things about the things that you love, including one of my favorite things, the Helping Friendly Podcast. Am I biased? Probably. Check that out and so many more wonderful things at OsirisPod.com. So, uh... We got a new Dave's pick a couple weeks ago. Holding it right here. Uh, I'm going to forego the in-depth discussion on it for this episode, other than to say it is, of course, excellent 1977 action. More on that next time, probably. We'll see. Um, let's not get ahead of ourselves. After the interview, please stick around for a little tribute to the recently passed David Crosby and Tom Verlaine. I've got some choice live cuts from each that I think you'll enjoy. In the meantime... Jeremy Hurwitz is, as I said, rootless. He releases terrific records centered on his guitar playing, and his latest is entitled What the Truth Leaves Out. It is out now on Feeding Tube Records. You can find it on cassette from feedingtuberecords.com or digitally from rootless.bandcamp.com. We'll hear a taste of that in just a bit, but first, let's get into this interview. Jeremy, thank you for sitting down and talking with me for the Broke Down Pod. Uh, it was great to finally get to see you play. Uh, was that last just last week? I think um, so. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I'm I'm glad to have you here to chat with me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's it's a real pleasure to be here. I've been listening to your music for a little bit, not as far back as I might would prefer to be able to say, you know, like, I'd like to be, oh, I've been listening for years, man. But, <laughs> um, but actually I think it was, uh, probably pandemic time. I was, I had really dialed into the stuff coming out on flower room and Matt Lajoie stuff. And it was the docile Cobras release. And I bought like the art edition of rootless, which I intended to dig <laughs> out of the stack here, but I didn't. Uh, I did cool. also got the remix tape, which I pulled out not just the other day and listened to again for the probably first time in a long time. Yeah. And you could Since hear the uh, cool story in the, in the art edition about, uh, the hang with keyboard money, Mark for the beastie boys and the whole creation of that record in LA, which is a cool story. I think. Yeah. It's, um, that's, it's a rad record. And I tell you what, it's funny how different your records can be to one another and I don't think I realized that for a little bit because I kind of followed from there the stuff that you continue releasing, which tends tended towards more solo guitar, but I didn't really go back. And uh, in doing that more recently, I've been kind of, uh, well, actually, I mean, imagine my surprise when I went back to the Rootless Trio record and heard it, basically a jazz record. Yeah. Like, what? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I, I want to get into all of that, and I want to talk about like the more recent stuff and whatever you know, like uh, what the truth leaves out and feeding tube, which I know I've mentioned on the show and is freaking cool. I just listened to it again today, and it's Thanks, great man. stuff. But I, I'd like to, and this anybody who listens regularly knows I will. This is they know this question's coming. Uh, when did you start playing uh, guitar, and was that even your first instrument? Yeah, I mean, pretty much, you know, I kind of, you know, as a young kid, you know, got put in front of, you know, pianos and recorders and all that. But the big moment for me, it probably dates me a little bit here was um, being around 13 and Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses coming out and just like rocking out in my room with my tennis racket and begging my parents for uh, guitar lessons. And I I have great parents and they said yes. And they'll tell you today that like, you know, I was capricious and they thought it was just a passing fad. But it led to, you know, what you're what we're talking about today. So that's how I got started with it from uh, Appetite for Destruction. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. That's funny. You jumped on the, like my next question is what were you listening to at the time? And Appetite is a kick ass album. Like the cover maybe doesn't age well, whatever. <laughs> um, the band in them, you know, in many ways could be said to not necessarily have aged well. But that record freaking rules. It's a slammer end to end. So, oh, um, so I was way into to it at the time still love it one of the great rock, rock records and around once a year uh, i or so i watch uh it's, it's on youtube guns and roses live at the ritz and that is like oh. the epitome of rock and roll like slash uh axel jumping in the crowd and getting torn up like storming off at the end when rocket queen is playing and not doing the last verse it's just like so great that was so cool <laughs> yeah absolutely and you know it's it's funny i think they uh people who didn't pay close attention. You like to lump them in with like the hair metal stuff that kind of followed or was coming up at the same time, but they're yeah. really a lot more of like a, a real rock and like uh, they got more like post punk punk yeah. influence to their kind of vibe. And especially when you look at listen to Slash and he's a metal totally. guy and so cool. Yeah. Um, so uh, when did you start your first metal band? <laughs> <laughs> never metal i just like i started taking guitar lessons and this really cool guy that i've unfortunately fallen out of touch with and i can't find him because i'd love to just you know say hello would come over and teach me you know scales and basic music theory and then you know teach me how to play you know gnr riffs aerosmith riffs you know from the mid 70s which is some of my other favorite stuff and nice. you know and and teach me teach me some of that stuff and that kept me kind of going so i got a little bit of theory and i got a little bit of just you know the candy of just learning the cool riff and and rock it out on it, you know? Cool. Um, time passes mm -hmm. uh, between that and the, like the first, like the Rootless Trio release and stuff. What yeah. uh, were you in bands like in high school, college? Did you do that kind of thing or? I did. I did. I, I, I played in bands throughout college and it's kind of a long uh, story. I'll make it very short. But when I finished uh, graduation, um, when I graduated from University of Massachusetts Amherst, I was playing in a rock band. I was really psyched about it. So it was the late 90s when people still talked about like getting a record deal and, you know, hitting it big and all that. So I was told my family, I'm going to give this a shot for like a year. And I'm bartending at the Hotel Northampton and uh, these guys come in and they start doing an interview and I thought it was for the local paper, but it turns out it was for the New York Times and um, he was a big like locations manager and they were talking about his career and he was scouting for a DreamWorks movie in the area. Great guy, involved me in the conversation and wound up offering me a job on set running the the uh, construction shop. And um, I said yes, there I was like a recent 
grad, an English major uh, who could barely change a light bulb. And they put me in charge of uh, the construction shop. And I did everything from tracking like a $10 million construction budget and or cleaning the portage johns after, you know, everybody had used them at the end of the day. And it changed my life because um, I was busy from like 6 a.m. till 9 p.m. So I just, it really got in the way of the band. I didn't spend any money. I saved up a ton of money. My band kind of fell apart because I, w- I wasn't really as around. And I had a, a a big conversation one night with somebody I worked with about what am I going to do next? And I thought I'd go to New York and work in film. But I had dreamed of going to Europe. Uh, you know, I'd, I had been there during a trip between my junior and, and or sophomore and junior year kind of kicking around the continent. And I wanted to just go back and see where it took me. And that's that's what happened. You know, she said to me, look, you know, if you want to go now, you don't have an apartment in New York. You, nobody's going to forget you. You've done a great job. Like, I, I really struggled. I almost got fired and, you know, I couldn't make it work. But I the lesson of making it work and a few people helping me out gave me a belief in myself, you know, at that critical moment in time that I could do anything. So with that feeling, I said, you know what, I'm going to go do this. And I went overseas. Uh, with a backpack and a guitar uh, in, the, in January 5th, 1998. And I stayed abroad for just under a decade. I started a big adventure in my life. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, bounced around the whole time or key? Uh, now I'm really curious. Like, So where, <laughs> where did you go? Uh, again, I guess maybe short version, a decade. You probably could have gone a lot of places. But uh, yeah. where were the, the high points? I did. I, I, at sharing. first, I... I kicked around for a little while. I lived in northern Spain where I had a really good buddy from college in Asturias, a town called Oviedo, which was uh, a lot of people know through the uh, the now disgraced filmmaker Woody Allen uh, and his movie Vicky Cristina Barcelona. That's Oviedo. I spent a few months there playing in the cafes, trying to scribble a novel in a notebook and but eventually kind of then traveled again and, you know, kind of kicked around. But finally I settled in Prague where I spent uh, the next seven years uh, based out of before spending another couple based out of Shanghai. And I was uh, I was a freelance journalist and I wrote for a wide variety of publications, but I also helped build a really wonderful uh, media association called Project Syndicate. We had a little bit of Soros money and they, they kind of talked me out of grad school in my mid-20s. I was going to go back to school for journalism and international affairs. And they said, no, stay and help us grow this thing. And so I did. And I got to travel all over the world. Um, and in some ways that has, that's kind of the genesis of the idea of the rootless title, which I can tell you about if you're interested, but before I forget, I wanted to mention, cause this is a, a music thing too. It's kind of funny. It's a footnote here, but in Prague uh, during those years, I still played music, but I focused a lot on the writing, but I did play and I had a jazz duo with a guy named Joshua Cohen in Prague. We played every Sunday and Joshua recently won the Pulitzer prize for his novel, the Nets and Yahoo's. So uh, pretty funny that, uh, wow. You know, uh, we had a, a duo together. I don't. I, we're not in touch anymore, but it's kind of just a random footnote to those crazy days of artists and artists wannabes in Prague. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Uh, good company to keep, I guess. Yeah, no doubt. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that was one of my questions. Is uh, the I, I I know you've spoken of it elsewhere, and I, so I've read this answer, but mm-hmm. uh, but I'd like you to share if you could the origins of Rootless. Yeah, for sure. And it feels as relevant today as it did back then. But, um, you know, some people might know the term Rootless Cosmopolitan uh, through the Mark Rebo band. <laughs> I think he had a band named the Rootless Cosmopolitans. But the term comes from uh, a Stalin, Joseph Stalin, who used it to attack the Jews in the 50s as, you know, Rootless, not tied to any nation state um, and cosmopolitan like city dwellers when the kind of agrarian ideal was what uh, the communist uh 
party was kind of lionizing. So he attacked the Jews as not tied to any nation state and cosmopolitan city city dwellers. And so and then it became this kind of postmodern term that Rebo had fun with. And and it became my handle, you know, in the early 2000s on like blogs and different things. I just used the term rootless because I identified it being of, um, you know, Jewish heritage and also because Literally during those, you know, nine years abroad, I, I while I was based in Prague and Shanghai, I, you know, I, I was seldom in any of those places for more than a week or two straight. I was constantly traveling and that was wonderful, but it made me feel somewhat unmoored, somewhat rootless. Um, and that's uh, and I think that's, you know, reflected in the music. I think you're you kind of referred to the eclectic nature of the releases and there's more to come in that respect. But uh, I think that's at heart of it and it's at heart of my personality. Um, and uh, yeah. And, and, you know, I started Rootless. I don't want to jump ahead here too much, but with an eye yeah. towards kind of uh, capturing that that period of time in my life a little bit. I've moved away from that a bit, but it was bewildering to kind of come back to the U.S. and you go from being an, an expatriate where you're like the most interesting person in the room because you're a foreigner a lot of times to being just <laughs> another, you know, dude from the suburbs who lives in New York. I, I grew up in the burbs. And uh, so it's not like it's only the matter of attention and all that, but it, it was, you know, I had such crazy experiences overseas, just weird stories, wacky, amazing adventures. And then you're just back in New York and I had a corporate job and I was just like, wow, how do I make sense of memory and interpret that? So I wanted to include a lot of like my writing, like poetry, like journal stuff. And there was a lot of spoken word in my early stuff. And there's still a bit of it. Um, but I have a new record coming out, which we can talk about later, that maybe gets back to some of that idea that I'm excited um, to incorporate. But that's that's a little bit of the roots of things, the roots of Rootless. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I encountered some of the spoken word on the, uh, the self-titled piece, which uh, I guess is the, it's the second one on the band camp, the Rootless release yeah that's the one so and you met uh and you met greg walters at the uh at the concert who uh oh, yes. was my my good buddy and he was playing in a popular uh kind of pop band at the time tiny victories and he you know because he's a good buddy a really talented guy um mixed and and produced that record for me as a favor and that's how that came out but uh just to tie that in with last saturday <laughs> cool yeah um yeah that i like the sound so he did good work on that um so you come back, you decide you want to get into, you know, doing some music as a an outlet uh, on the side of the the day job, which uh, I get that. I do that myself. Yep. Um, uh, the Rootless Trio, as I yeah. said, this is, this is a jazz record. Um, uh, talk to me about this group, this release, and, um, you know, where... What what informs this? Like you mentioned, Mark Rabot, I could hear some of that in there. I mean, what what, what where does this come from in your experience? You know, I think a lot a lot of it came from hearing like I love uh, the Chicago jazz stuff, and and I think Isotope Two Seventeen, the Unstable Molecule, was like a big a big album for me. And not that I hold a candle to any of those players, but it made jazz feel a little bit more like accessible. Um, because I still think that's a real jazz record, but it has a rock aesthetic at times too, and. Um, I just thought, you know, I I play a lot of things that sound like jazz on my own when I was playing that, and I really wanted to get into like a trio type of situation. So I found a couple guys, and um, you know, we had a really good run. We played a lot with Daniel Carter, if you know who that is. You know, I've had the pleasure of seeing and hearing him play. Actually, yeah, I mean, he's he's so great, and and we brought Daniel in on a bunch of shows, and we had a good run. Um, but you know, uh, 
that band and the one before it too, a great, really, really awesome trio that became a duo called Monastics. And we actually reunited virtually to put a record out over the pandemic, which I'm, I'm pretty proud of on L.E. Grand Records. Um, that guy's a really cool dude. Uh, but the experience of being in bands, especially with like a busy job, I just said, you know what? I've had it like, you know, musicians can be really unreliable and flaky and mercurial and frankly nuts sometimes. So I was just like, you know what? I'm going to just I just want to do it on my own. And and that's what um, encouraged me to kind of do this solo project. Yeah, I mean, I, I get that. And plus, just having your own schedule is can be a challenge in itself. So, uh, you know, I've worked for, you know, I, I have a career of my own. And just the idea of trying to form a band uh, has been, you know, it'd be lovely to have a band. But who's got time to rehearse a band enough to, know, be, right? enough to be worth everybody's time? And then... You know, so, <laughs> but I definitely have enough time to rehearse myself. Maybe, yeah. maybe enough time to rehearse. I myself. think that has maybe something not. to do with it. But I'm, I'm glad you like that record. I, I'd love to get together with a couple more people and and do something a little bit more in that vein. But um, I didn't expect to have that come up. But I'm glad that you connected with that one. Thank you. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, that leads to something else I wanted to ask you about. Is uh, so there's definitely some collaboration in a few of these records. Uh, Dossal Cobras, for example, um, you have a collaborator on that whose name I will mispronounce, but maybe you could say it for us. <laughs> I hope um, I can get it right too. Luis Perez uh, Ishnotelli, I believe is how you sell it, say it. Yeah. yeah, and and that like so when I first heard that record, I was definitely not. I think when I first heard it, I was not really kind of putting together what was happening there, and yeah. uh, but I went, you know, continued to listen to it and realized that. You know, it's not um, a case of you played and this other person played kind of added stuff. This is really there's a back and forth on that record that I think is maybe not always present on these kinds of things. So, like, uh, as you look to you look at your future plans or other aspirations that may be beyond actual plans, like is collaboration like a continuing priority for you? I mean. Yeah, I think so. I, I I would love to bring other people into the mix. I have some, you know, collab ideas that I'm pursuing and, and then some I can tell you about, too, that'll come out um, that are hopefully this year. Um, but definitely, you know, especially during the isolation of the pandemic, like, you know, it's been so fun to just jam with people. Even, you know, you saw PJ and Mike at that jam at Rhizome. That, that was, was pretty cool. Really cool. Yeah, thanks, man. So I, I would continue to love to do that, but I also continue to double down on, you know, augmenting my capabilities at home. I think there's going to be more electric guitar stuff in my future, too, after a long run of a lot of acoustic stuff. Um, so just, you know, keeping it restless, keeping it rootless, I suppose, and, and you know, <laughs> not repeating myself necessarily. This might be a good moment to mention the uh, recent uh, uh, record with uh, with Matt Lejoie, the uh, mm -hmm. What did you guys title that? I have it in my collection, but I don't have it it's in front of me. ML Rootless. ML Rootless, exactly. <laughs> yes. Um great, great release. Uh and Thanks, is there is there more of that in the offing? There is, there is. I wasn't okay. sure if Matt wanted to put out some of the other stuff. We the the album that that came out is um there were two different sessions. Uh that was the morning session of kind of day two 
took a cup of coffee out to my front porch in the cabin in Vermont. And you can hear that. You can hear the cicadas. You can hear the sounds of the outdoors. So I just think that's really special. And those two songs are just completely improvised, recorded on the porch over coffee. And I just I love that so much. And uh, but the day before we had uh, a, a jam session um, that's a little bit more bugged out, a little far out. And I think Matt is interested in putting some of that stuff out, too. Um, so we might see that this year. Tell him I'm looking for it. Um, <laughs> He's going to listen, so he'll, <laughs> he'll he'll hear it from you, Jonathan. <laughs> cool, cool. Definitely looking for it. And then Matt, uh, if you're listening, then uh, give me give me a call and come on, and we'll talk about it. Then. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's he's so prolific. He's uh, so great. Yeah, put out so much great stuff on Flower Room. Everybody should be checking their stuff out. Um, totally. Like you mentioned, you worked in a lot of different veins, but this. Uh, the solo guitar, what some people call it, guitar soli. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know what it is. It's just, it's great, great sounds. Do you have any, like, are you a Fahey guy? Or are you coming from somewhere else, coming from nowhere in particular? I know you've mentioned jazz as a, you know, big influence. What, what kind of signposts did you follow down the road to where this kind of sound that you're able to put together live? Yeah, I'll uh, I'll give you. I'm going to kind of back into that answer with uh, something. Um, you know, there's a record. I don't know if you're familiar with on Cabin Floor Esoterica, the first kind of guitar record I have called Sculptures Deep Within the Cave. Very cool release. He put. You know, he. he I don't think he's doing the releases at the moment, but he did these beautiful boxes that were handcrafted, and he would put like a, a dried juniper berry in there, and the artwork was really just cool stuff. And um, I had a moment in, in my life where I had left one job and was going to go to another and I had some time off and I went up to Vermont and just kind of put a, a, a microphone in front of me with the guitar and started playing. And I, I just had never thought that I could be that guy that people would want to hear me playing solo acoustic guitar. But I've been playing like that since, you know, not long after I started learning to play guitar, I discovered open tunings. So that was a thrill that someone was interested in releasing it and really encouraged me to grow in that way. And much in that similar way, again, I said I'm backing into this answer here, but um, what the truth leaves out, you know, since I've been playing shows, a lot of people come up to me and and, and mention the name Bill Orcutt, which I'm always incredibly flattered because I, I think he's amazing. And 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 Orcutt isn't, I can't call him an influence, or maybe I could, but because I only discovered him in fairly recent years. But one of the things when I heard him play, I said, you know, I play like that on my own again, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. much in the same, you know, maybe you just need permission or a nudge, but much in the same way that I decided to make a jazz record i was like listen to orca just rip with all those like open string runs and that aggression and and i was like i play like that and i want to so i'm gonna go do it so you know maybe it just gave me a nudge but um to your question uh you know i i i'm i love fahey but he's another guy discovered after i had started you know playing in those tunings when i was younger i didn't come from like a super hip uh music family or didn't have like an older brother who like turned me on to a million things so i you know i knew about like leo kotke and michael hedges but this is also before the internet too so i didn't know a lot a lot about like the fahey's and robbie bashos of the world but what i did know about was like um some stuff that my uncle turned me on to including 
you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash and, um, and, and that kind of stuff. So uh, that's where I got my first kind of peek into open tunings. Also the Zeppelin black mountain side. That was a huge song for me. I was like, what is he doing with that? <laughs> Ripping off Bert Janch. Yeah, probably. But I was like, <laughs> Oh, that's open C. I think what, maybe it was like a detuning actually. I don't really remember, but I, I learned it and I was like, Holy crap, this is such cool stuff that you can do with the guitar out of standard tuning, you know, move away from that. So that's was my first taste of it. One of these days I'll retune one of my guitars, but I still live in standard. <laughs> it's a it's standard has become an, and standards become like an alternate tuning to me now. So it's kind of fun to <laughs> go back to it. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean Crosby was uh, as a folky before even the birds was playing in this open tunings and writing songs against them, which is uh kind of um kind of awesome really um i seem i seem to remember reading somewhere that i think it was guinevere predated uh any of that stuff is one of his old songs that he brought in uh somewhere cool. i read along with all the recent tributes of which you know got a little bit of that in this episode outside this interview but um yeah uh you mentioned bill orcutt and talked about i i saw him play last spring at the like three lobed 21st anniversary thing he was playing with chris corsano and watching him play with no pedals just a telly and a cord and an amp and a pretty much you know clean tone and just Shred is not even the right word because shred implies something very different, but he mm -hmm. just ripped. I think you use that word. I, I'm going to mm -hmm. use it too because he just, it was kind of mind blowing to watch him just completely tear up that guitar and reminded me that my pedal collection is just a bunch of noises. It's not, mm -hmm. a, it, not a thing I need, although I do like them. Um, <laughs> but just watching him play was just, it was really a, a revelation. It was a hell of a weekend, but yeah, set was totally. definitely I mean, stuck with me. Yeah. And, and I think you're onto something about like how austere it is too. Like I also have, you know, a whole bunch of pedals and I enjoy going deep with that, but some of the, you know, the ways I've been playing lately with just acoustic guitar and having it stripped down again, I think a little bit of a nod to Orchid and, uh, but just the approach, you know, the temperament, the the fearlessness, you know, not worried about, you know, a bad note or anything like that. Just, you know, and, and I I'm drawn to players that like their, their personalities really come through and they're playing, you know, and I think Orcutt's one of those examples of like who he is as a person is just screaming out of his music. And I, I just love that about his playing so much. Yeah. I think I, I got that vibe from your set. You had three guitars, presumably three different tunings, uh, mm -hmm. To work with as well as uh, capos and a partial capo and I, I need to get one of those someday <laughs> when I start using open tunings I, I like the <laughs> idea of it one of the questions that that raised because you, know, you introduced your pieces uh, was uh, how much improvisation is in your work a lot a lot um you know it's like i think maybe even coming back to this jazz idea like there's a head you know and i, I i'll sometimes use that as kind of you know something and then go from there but the one uh, you might recall, I played one on kind of a smaller travel guitar and uh, yeah. that's in standard tuning. And that's just like totally improvised. It's a song called Excess of Reason on that that feeding tube record you've referenced, uh, What the Truth Leaves Out. And I, I just love playing like that. Uh, and it's completely improvised. But 
you know, even the first song that I played, which is, uh, uh, you know, what Matt and I, uh, the first track on the, the record with Matt, and it's called Challenger Hill, which is my, the street and my cabin is on in Vermont. And, uh, you know, that was completely improvised when Matt and I did it. But now I use that tuning and that capo placement and a couple of like ideas, you know, that are there. But otherwise, I'm, I have no game plan going into it otherwise. So a lot of stuff that's you know, you could say it's improvised, but you have like maybe like a tiny, tiny roadmap of like where you might go, you know, or what you might use. You have your key, you have your, you know, tuning and you have a, maybe a, a lick or a riff to launch from kind of thing. Something like that. Yeah. Or, yeah. or even return to. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, as an aside, I wanted to ask you about that part, that like parlor size travel guitar. What kind is that? Because uh, there's, there's I, a cool I, story behind that. Eyeball those. Yeah, myself. it's I don't I don't even know off the top of my head, but the story is that um, my wife and I uh, were good. We're fortunate enough to to uh, be able to, to make the big life change of buying an apartment in Williamsburg, and we uh, over the pandemic, you know, and and we when we were looking at the place that we ultimately bought, the broker. Uh, showed me there was a whole bunch of music gear in the corner and i was like what the heck's that and it's like well the owner of the uh of the unit bought this place for his daughter he's a big music guy named peter asher and uh peter asher he looks like he might know who he is you know he i know this name yeah i mean he's like this big beatles guy now because growing up in england in the 60s his his sister dated paul mccartney i believe and he knew all those right. guys He's now on, you know, Sirius XM. He does a show and he's like a major authority on the Beatles. But he moved, he had a, a folk duo too. I think it was like Peter and J Peter and maybe it was Peter and Jeremy. I, I can't recall, but he moved to LA and is associated with that LA sound. I think he either discovered and or managed the careers of uh, Linda Ronstadt and James Taylor. So he was in, deeply involved yeah. there. But he's also uh, supposedly the basis for the Austin Powers character as an outlandish British guy. <laughs> so uh, the look fits. If you find a picture of him from the yeah. uh, like late sixties, uh, the the mop top, there you red go. hair, big glasses. Yeah, there you go. So so there was like a, a couple guitars, a couple basses, a synthesizer, and the broker was like, "Hey, look, if you're interested, I'll leave this stuff behind. It was going to get donated to charity or something. I don't know." Um, so I inherited all this gear, wow. some of which I got rid of. There was like a pink bass and a heart guitar, you know, which I'm not really <laughs> playing and and my my deal. But I, uh, I kept the little travel guitar, and I just I I love small size guitars. I find them really fun to play. So um, I, I enjoy that guitar for you know. And Rebo, speaking of Rebo, we did a, a an album, you know, on a pretty broken toy guitar. So I, I've always been kind of drawn to this kind of you know weird uh you know uh, beat up guitars well they have a completely different sound to a dreadnought guitar uh yeah. by default just yeah. they absolutely are going to and some will be better than others for sure but uh you know if you want a guitar that's going to emphasize your you know your high end high yeah. frequencies yeah it's um that'll that'll get you there totally I wanted to swing back because this episode has, you know, kind of multiple purposes. Uh, you know, your name will be on the top on the in the title, but um, I'm also taking some time to pay tribute to David Crosby and Tom Verlaine. And uh, you mentioned you had some more thoughts on David Crosby, so I want to make sure we take some time to talk about him because, you know, he's a freaking legend, uh, amazing writer, but also an interesting. You know, like a, a really creative composer uh, influences me. Like if I, if I can only remember my name is 
you know, just uh, stunning work, not just of music and not just because of the cast and, you know, of players, but like mm-hmm. his composition and his vocal performance and the absolute like shattering grief in that, that drives that record is yep. so profound um, that even if he had only done that one thing, I would still be talking about him right now. Um, but uh, yeah, tell me, tell me your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, um, I was really heartbroken when he passed. I didn't, you know, I, I, he was very active on Twitter and I feel like, you know, it was kind of shocking. Um, yeah. And I, I just admire the way, like the ups and downs of his life and, you know, how much of a dick he was at times to people and how open he was about that. And, you know, the messy parts of his life, you know, the gun charges, the, you know, alcohol and substance abuse, they were all there for on display. And at, even till the very end, he was telling you exactly what he thought and didn't pull any punches. And it was just a, an iconic figure. But, um, you know, when I was a kid, uh, my my mother's younger bronco, uh, brother, uh, my uncle, uh, Stu, um, he turned me on to a lot of music. You know, he was a big Southern rock guy. So he loved the Ullman Brothers, Marshall Tucker Band, Leonard Skinner. But he turned me on to Crosby, Stills and Nash as well. And, you know, he was he was the cool uncle growing up. You know, he was uh, he had the Jufro, you know, the aviator sunglasses, <laughs> you know, the 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 70s jean shorts, you know, f- throwing a Frisbee around, smoking pot out of an apple kind of thing, you know, and he, he was a cool guy. And uh, and and he turned me on to, you know, Crosby and and uh, and CSNY and and it was just some music that is just timeless and just stays with me and uh, you know I just love Crosby. I mean, uh, one of my favorites. Some of those that music has some of my favorite songs, like "Almost Cut My Hair." I mean, I get chills every time I hear that. The defiance of it, you know, the 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 passionate kind of wail in those vocals and you can you can feel the 60s in that music you know and um uh, wooden ships you know uh the great stuff and and the, and the the uh the other side of it too like you know the open tunings that were part of that group um the intimacy of a song like uh my lady of the island uh, so i just i love that music and it opened up panoramas and musical ideas to me that are still with me so strongly to this day so yeah, I'm glad that you're going to talk about Crosby and we just want to honor his legacy as a true icon. Yeah, I mean, the guy was not just individually, of course, but, you know, he was also collectively part of some, just some pretty amazing, amazing shit. You mentioned um, Wooden Ships and, like, they go right along with it. Their arrangement of Woodstock uh, made oh, it a hit. So and it was just powerful. And Ohio, amazing. You talk about, you know, that passion and i guess it's technically 1970 but you know that the energy of the 60s and things that they were they poured into those records is totally long time gone played that in bands you know just great stuff yeah cool yeah i i play i play woodstock um do you sometimes but yeah i think it it harkens a little more towards um Joni's, uh, like, I, I, I watched this video one time. It was a film, I can't remember the name of it, but it's this uh, one-day festival that was at Big Sur, the celebration at Big Sur, I think is what mm-hmm. it's called, and it takes place in, the, I think, the autumn of 1969, and, and Joni Mitchell is, comes up and plays on piano and says, I, I think some of you may have been at Woodstock, and here's a song I wrote about it, and it just, like I, I knew the song by then, by the time I saw this video, and this is about twenty years ago. I probably saw this for the first time, and it just floored me. I've to never hear seen her that. Just 
play it by herself. And um, I, of course, can't sing like that. But um, <laughs> I'd like to hear your. But it still there. influenced my version. It's out there. It's on the. It's on my Bandcamp. Okay. There's a. There's a live. I'll check it out. Semi live recording. It's fake live. It's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I don't play shows or haven't yet. Um, I just I set up a mic and just recorded a few songs in like straight single takes. Yeah, get you out there. Yeah, someday, someday. It's it's uh. Frankly, it's terrifying. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but yeah, talk to me about that. Actually, so you've got this—you've got this music uh, career. Is not—is that the word? This musical portion of your life. You've got a regular job, um, and you know you still find make time to play shows, make records. How is that balance working for you? And do you, is it beneficial to have the outlet or? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I've thought a lot about and kind of come around to a different way of thinking for years, because when I came back from my time overseas, I took some corporate jobs and um, learned a lot. Uh, and I now work, I have my own little business. I, I write, I, I do a bunch of different things. I, uh, I contract as uh, in different fields. Um, and, uh, that's very liberating. So I really like my work-life balance with creativity these days, but for years I was working more corporate jobs. And for a while I was like, oh, it's cool that I can be, you know, working in midtown Manhattan, but then come home and come back to Brooklyn and make weird music. And after a while, I felt it kind of became at odds with, with itself. Like instead of, I felt like a novelty and I felt like there was like imposter syndrome and not that you have to live any one way to do it, but this way of living right now suits me a little bit more. So I think everybody has their evolution about how they do it and changes as you get older. But what I've also come to really believe is that like, I'm a little grossed out by the sort of, um, you know, networking side of the music world. I can't blame people because, you know, you got to form alliances. And of course I do some of it, but like the whole social media thing, the, the, old, the whole, like, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Um, I just think of, often elevates mediocrity. I'm not going to name any names here, but I think there's a lot of artists who I just, I'm shocked to have such big followings. I, and I'm like, okay, let me, let me check out this record because it's getting reviewed. And I'm like, this is so bland and so like nothing. And and so there's a, you know, I try not to make like bitching about other musicians a thing. So I, I'm trying not to do that with, with friends of mine, but I know a lot of people feel the same way about some of these folks. And um, I think that being on the outside and not having to, you know, make music my, the way I'm feeding myself and making it my end all be all offers me a chance to be, an outsider and do things exactly on my own terms and make the music that I want to make and do exactly what I want to do for the reasons I want to do it. I'm not pure or anything, you know, like I, but I think some of the alliances I've formed have come about, you know, really organically like Matt Lajoie, it's just a great friendship and there's just true kinship between us and respect for each other's music. Um, but I can do that. I can, I can play and do what I want to do and not think, you know, will I be able to tour on this record or what will this thing, you know? So for me, um, I don't want to sound like high and mighty about it at all. Cause I don't have all the answers in any sense, but to me, this is working <laughs> a little bit in the way that I wanted to. It's the answer for you. Right. Exactly. And that's the only Surely thing me. we can expect. I, and, you know, obviously much respect to the lifers and anybody who totally, uh, commits, uh, but for a completely different life, I might have done that. Um, Me too, man. But 
uh, you know, I didn't. And yeah, I, I relate to that imposter syndrome thing. It kept me from doing anything for a long time, actually, yeah. um, because I thought, well, I don't have the time to commit to it. And then, okay, well, you know, so I put out my own mediocre records and I, they, I'm making the way I want to make them. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and I think that is, well, it's, it's pretty fulfilling. Um, the only thing is that I have this little hole that I will keep trying to fill with the next record. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like, I haven't, maybe I haven't is. quite crossed it, but we'll keep trying and, uh, it's fun. And you always yeah, want more. You always yeah, want more. There's even another, if like, there's... uh, even, even if like, you know, I, I'm, I'm talking about this, like, you know, I have a job and all that, but, um, if for some reason I was able to make a living making music, that would be an incredible blessing and I would love to do it. And as you said, much respect to anybody that's walking that hard road, but also, you know, to validate what you're saying, like, I think after one of my first albums came out on a physical release, I was like, that's a big goal of mine. That someday, somewhere, somebody I don't know could be holding this cassette and playing it is a huge deal to me. You know, when I'm long gone, maybe someone will listen to it. But now, after everyone that comes out, you want to do more and you want this or you want that. So um, you got to get that stuff in balance if you can. Yeah. You know, and it's, uh, I, it's, it's not as much I want more so much as it just there's, there is more. There's yeah. more to say. Um, and Agreed. maybe today there isn't, but tomorrow there's going to be something else I feel like I got to say. So we'll put out. I think that's well else. said. I agree with that. So, yeah. And we just keep at it, I guess. Because uh, <laughs> why not? And uh, there's also the fun, right? Uh -huh. I, like I, I find it fun. Like Absolutely. I, if, if we weren't, so this is a, for everybody who's listening, this is, a, we're recording on a early afternoon on a Saturday. And if we weren't doing this, I'd still be sitting right here, but I'd be probably tinkering with microphones and like recording something for some future song. You know, I've got a couple of songs that are in the hopper and uh, there's always something and I just keep totally keep man. I'm in the studio here too. It would be the same deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so we've touched on, let's just make sure we're talking about all the releases. So we've touched on the last falls feeding tube records cassette release uh mm -hmm. what the truth leaves out which of course everybody can also find on your band camp uh but uh got it got a shout out feeding tube they're a oh, great man. label um i you know i talk about i talk about great labels from time to time and feeding tube is is definitely one of my favorites i don't i don't necessarily get everything they put out but that is as much because they put out so much stuff they it's kind of crazy uh good for them those guys are so great. I was just up in uh, Western Mass and I, and I uh, went to the shop and I got to have lunch with Byron Coley, which was a big thrill. What a, what nice. a cool guy, you know, what an interesting dude. So I'm really grateful to Ted and Byron for putting out that record and bringing me into the feeding tube family, which is, you know, great, great company. That's, that is great company. And then, um, let's see what else, uh, just some of the recent ones. I mentioned Das Al Cobras, which is a pandemic record. Places to Remember Us uh, came out, what was that, 21? Places and Remember Us is a pandemic record. Das Al Cobras was recorded in LA before the pandemic, but uh, Places Remember Us came was out recorded. During, yeah, 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 yeah. So, that, yeah, we can say that. Yeah. Places to Remember Us, though. Tell, can you tell me just a, give me a little like snapshot about that record? Because I really liked it. Uh, I will say like the owl, the owls are not what they seem the opening <laughs> track with the uh, field recordings, I, I presume of an owl. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's the, amazing. 
that that album um uh, first of all on another amazing label oral canyon uh they they put out great stuff and i can tell you about a record that's i have another one coming out with them so that was my second for oral canyon and matt uh who, who runs the rec uh the label asked me to uh put out uh something else with those guys and um i uh it it the pandemic had just kicked off so i was pretty isolated with my wife up in vermont and had my guitars and just so it's a very stark uh acoustic guitar record um but yeah one night we were it was during the really bleak moments in the pandemic you know when people were dying especially in new york and it was really heavy on us being you know felt bad leaving new york like you know but we're safe in vermont and we were lucky to be up there but uh one night it was getting late you know fire had died down it's probably late march early april and we heard an owl just outside of of where we were and and uh outside of the house and and we couldn't see it because it was in the woods just off the the terrace there and uh, but it was it must have been right there so i grabbed my task cam and i got a really good recording and if you listen closely you could hear the wind in the trees as well as the owl so um I, I i love that track uh john also bennett plays uh flute on it uh who's in forma who's a you know, really cool musician um so i'm really glad that you like that one and um that record is just a really personal you know stark isolated record i think the photo uh the the cover art if you will of like me with a long beard and overgrown hair uh i felt was like relevant something. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a good cover um <laughs> Thanks, man. so what's what's next yeah a couple things um so i mentioned oral canyon uh just finishing up the the masters for a new record my third one with them which i just talked to matt uh you know over the internet the last couple of days i think we're going to do a release in mid-july um and i'm pretty stoked about that because the um the cover art too and i mentioned kind of the genesis of rootless but i dug up these old photos in my travels and kind of the early to mid 2000s i was in angor wat in cambodia and I, I'm not a, you know, a particularly skilled photographer, but I took photos with a, you know, point and shoot camera and the photos, um, they kind of, uh, aged and, and, uh, you know, became a little bit, uh, I don't know, messed up. Uh, how do you put it? You know, like, like it almost looks like, uh, one of the filters and in Instagram on them, you know, yeah. and I digitized them and there's some anger. Why was just amazing and there's some really cool photos of just the way uh the the trees are growing out of the temples and uh and and it felt perfect be both because of that legacy of travel that i want to kind of honor in my in my own work uh but also because the name of the record which is the last track on the album is to to build yourself a temple is to wall yourself inside and um there's some cool temple photos and i'm working with a really great visual artist named uh, cleo barnett in uh, mexico city who's going to do some visual work for it so i'm really pumped for that release that's going to be nice. in july um should i keep rambling on here about other no, this is, yeah, this is, <laughs> this is um, cool i i want to say uh yeah. you know you're downplaying your photographic skills sometimes some things can't be photographed poorly yeah you know? that's true that's some true. things that no matter what angle you get, you're getting something. Uh, Anchor Watt, I would think, is probably one of those, unless you just drop your camera on the ground and it. Glows, you're right. Maybe. You're right. And and I've <laughs> I, I've taken photos for uh, several of the releases. I'm uh, there's one called Distant Cities, which I took in Patagonia, um, and then the the first record, which you referred That's to, cool cover. Yeah, is uh, is in Prague uh, at a very spiritual location um, in a, in a park called Regrovisadi, so that has meaning for me as well. 
Um, but the the other release that's uh, sooner, I think it's going to be an April release. Uh, I'm going to see uh, Tim from uh, Island House Records tonight. We'll talk about it. But uh, Tim's doing incredible work with Island House Recordings. It's rapidly becoming one of the coolest labels around. Oh yeah, and 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 Tim's a great guy who's bringing tons of energy and ideas to the music scene. So I love I love his involvement, and he he really likes this record that I made, which I think you're going to find is a curveball. There's a lot more vocals, a lot more instrumentation. Got a lot of guests on there. Matt Lajoie on there. Ash Brooks is on there with vocals. Cool. I have a percussionist named Trip Dudley. Uh, Zachary Paul plays uh, violin. Uh, so that record, uh, which is called Other Reasons, uh, will hopefully be out in uh, April and should be a different direction as well. And uh, That's cool. Island and, House, is a that is a great, great label. Of course, uh, listeners will remember that uh, Sea Window Battery is on Island of House. Of course, yeah. And, uh, so, yeah. Very yeah. cool stuff. Tim is definitely a good guy. Um, I've had the pleasure of messaging with him a bit about a few things, and uh, yeah, I'm excited for that release. Yeah, that's going to be a good one. I'm really pumped for that. And uh, the other one that I'm excited to tease out a little bit, I got Matt's permission to mention this, but uh, shortly before the pandemic, uh, me, Matt, and Ash, uh, who they constituted Star Starbirth, uh, we did a collab, and we recorded uh, at my cabin in Vermont. Uh, November 2019, I think it was. And uh, we have a ton of material. I don't know if we're going to do it as a double record or what, but um, it's kind of been on the shelf, like derailed by like the pandemic and some things. But I think we're going to try to get that out this year. And I'm really pumped for that because I, I just think there's really good stuff on there and they're, they're two great people. So pretty excited for that to be out in the world as well. Yeah, well, uh, pretty much any flower room is a must buy for me so uh <laughs> throw you in the mix and i'm like yeah i'll be there and uh, we'll make sure to tell everybody about it when it's when it's on the way thanks so John. yeah man that's awesome um you know last thing i want to ask you about before we go is uh what are you listening to lately what am i listening to lately let me let me yeah. look at some things here Today it's I was new listening. pop quiz. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Today I was just listening to the the new uh, Oren Arambarchi uh, shebang. That was really cool. Um, I've been listening to that. Uh, let me just look at my uh, my library here a little bit. Um, someone told me at a recent gig when I played up in Western Mass, uh, Anthony Pasquarosa as well as uh, mm -hmm. Shannon Catch separately, even though they're part of like the same scene kept told, telling me that I sound like Gary Higgins, uh, who made that album Red Hash. So I've been listening to that a little bit and I, I see the I see the connection. Um, I love this record by uh, uh, Dave Miller, The Daughter of Experience. I think that is such a cool album. Um, love this uh, Czech guy, Thomas uh, Niesner, and uh, his latest record is really cool. It's called like, Betch Vau, if I'm getting it right. Um, so those are some of the ones that are kind of top of mind for me. Um, cool. I'm sure that as soon as we're done taping, I'm going to say, damn it, why didn't I mention this or that record? You know, uh, <laughs> a friend of like, mine you know, or something I'm loving, you know. <laughs> there's so many, so much good music. Uh, we had a Bandcamp Friday just yesterday, and I just... Yep. Like I have to stop myself after a point, and I know there's stuff I I still want. I mean, I still got a wish list full of things um, on Bandcamp that I just I can't can't get it all all at once. And so just what I think I said it in an email to you. Uh, so much so much music, so little time. It's I mean, true. I can only absorb I it all. 
And I think <laughs> I said to you, or or I know I it triggers the thought that I kind of a resolution this year for me is to, to maybe that sounds bad, but to I, I'm constantly digging for new music. I read the wire every month. I'm constantly, you know, talking with folks like you. I just want to pull the brakes back a tiny bit on that in 2023 and go back into some of the artists and music that I have in my, you know, huge library, physical or digital, and spend time with some artists and some records that I love and not constantly be listening to new stuff and filing it away. So that's just something I'm thinking about these days. Yeah, I like that idea. I don't know if I can really do it. It's it's all, I, I I hate to think that it's impulsive or compulsive to like get new music, but I'm just mm-hmm. I'm constantly energized and re-energized by hearing new stuff it it would be it's weird to think that you know i listen to so much stuff that doesn't directly influence the work that i make but Mm -hmm. um but i I can't help and maybe it would change like if i was you know maybe that would impact how i listened if it was really all feeding directly but just my brain needs new sounds so I'm i think it all influences it one way or the other whether it's directly like you know i've been describing bill orcutt you know and how like yeah. that directly influenced something i was doing or just subliminally like i listen to a lot of like classical music and i don't know if that comes out in my music or not but uh i think it's all part of what makes you who you are you know yeah i i could uh say i would say that i could hear just thinking back to listening to your set last week, I could hear and completely believe that you're someone who listens to a lot of classical music um, because there's a, depending on the era perhaps, but there's, you know, you find symmetry and certain um, tonal resolution in classical music that you don't, it's not like rock music, you know? So uh, I think that, I I believe that. Thanks man, I'll take that. uh, well, uh, this has been fun. Is there anything else that we should mention for everybody out there? Um, obviously, rootless.bandcamp.com is a good place to start. Uh, I'll put links and all on the blog, of course. Uh, anything else we should share with anybody? No, you know, some people have reached out to me because the the tape with Matt sold out really quick. So I do have some copies. If anybody wants to reach out directly, get in touch, uh, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll I can send you a tape. I've done that for some people, but yeah, I hope people check out the feeding tube record because that one was something. You know, I I, I hope this doesn't. I, w- I want to sound this with humility, humility, but you know, there's that miles davis quote i like a lot that takes a long time to play like yourself you know and i uh, i think the feeding tube record was me you know really playing like myself with a a big uh, a big nod to bill Orcutt and opening that door in some ways so uh i'd love to people hear that record yeah it's uh it's a great one in fact maybe we will go ahead and leave everybody with a cut from that uh so they can you know get a taste of what's going on cool um, man thank you so much for talking with me Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. It's been a lot of fun.
that was my guest, Jeremy Herwitz, a.k.a. Rootless, performing What the Truth Leaves Out from his album of the same name, which is now available from Feeding Tube Records or at rootless.bandcamp.com. Great guy, great music. Please do dig in. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to attempt to properly recognize a couple of notable losses of late. We'll start with David Crosby. He of the birds, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and sometimes Young, passed away a short time ago. He was a man who let it all show as he moved through his life and often translated it into amazing songs. His voice which he managed to keep strong despite his rather self-destructive middle period, still rang out beautifully in his most recent work, in which he found a renewed creative energy with his son in CPR or with the Lighthouse Band. Kroz had an amazing sense of harmony and the skills to implement it. His passing was somewhat sudden, which makes it hurt just a bit more. But today we'll celebrate him. I've got queued up a couple of live tracks. The first is from Crosby with the Lighthouse Band, This version of Guinevere is available on their recent release, Live from the Capitol Theater. After that, we have two songs from the same show, the first being Triad, a tune first recorded by The Birds but not released by them until the 80s. Jefferson Airplane dropped a take on it onto their album Crown of Creation, and it also appeared on the CSNY live record Four-Way Street. It's about a threesome, which maybe didn't quite fit The Birds thing in 1967. Here it is uh, pretty sweet, includes a beefy little jam. The latter cut is a great, great song. It's called Laughing. That song is from Crosby's criminally underrated at the time of release, If I Could Only Remember My Name. The record, uh, recorded during a period of extreme grief and in the company of so many amazing players, has since been appropriately reassessed and is now, I feel, widely regarded as a masterpiece. I could be wrong, I guess. I don't care. I know how I feel about it, and most of the folks in my circles are in at least general agreement. Uh, Anyways, this performance of Laughing comes from a a group informally called David and the Dorks. (laughs) Performed in uh, December of 1970, the band is, as some of you may know, David Crosby, Jerry Garcia, Phil Lesh, and Mickey Hart. You heard of those guys, right? Uh, This is just beautiful stuff. I hope you'll enjoy it. And I will be back in just a few minutes after these these three cuts to talk about Tom Verlaine.
she thought that no one was watching at all on the wall. She turned her gaze down the slope to the harbor where I lay. Anchor such a short day.
So that, that stuff is pretty great. Um, last but not least, I would like to say a few words about the late, great Tom Verlaine. Again, I don't feel like I can do really proper justice to the accomplishments of Verlaine, and I certainly couldn't hold a candle up to his humanity, who, who was as a man. Um, for the latter, please do locate Patti Smith's send-off to her friend as published in The New Yorker. I'll include a link in the blog for you. It's heavy and beautiful and worth your time. I can speak to what happened when I first listened to television, the band that Verlaine launched in the 70s. I was about 20 years old and working in a record shop in Virginia when a copy of television's self-titled 1992 release crossed the counter. My coworker eyeballed it, remembered that he had a copy, and handed it to me, asking if I'd listened to television before. He's a couple years older than I was, and uh, I shook my head, and I, he said, you'll love this. It's like if a bunch of deadheads started a punk band. I was a bit incredulous, and he amended to say that he was exaggerating because he knew what I liked and thought that I should dig this band. And then he told me that I needed to hear Marquee Moon, but this would be fine for a start, and he was right on both counts. Television managed to do what few other groups could. They connected the dots between the loose 60s jamming like the dead and the New York punk scene. This again is an oversimplification of who television was and what Verlaine could do as a player, but I think it suffices to start if you're not familiar. Hopefully this gets you in the door, and if if you are familiar, hopefully you forgive me for the oversimplification. Uh, these guys expanded my mind and that of just you know so many listeners the two minute aggro ditty swells into a 10 minute uh heavy as a pallet of bricks sort of opus marquee moon was built around guitars that stabbed and slashed equally as much as they soared and sang and i fell for it uh Verlaine's output was, of course, not limited to this one band. Over the years, he collaborated with a great many artists, including, of course, Patti Smith, uh, more recently, like John Medeski and Lee Ronaldo, and, and so many more. Uh, he, he will be missed, but definitely not forgotten. We're going to kick off this set with a live version of Marquee Moon from June 10th, 1978, a room called My Father's Place in Roslyn, New York. Is a raging version that I think you'll enjoy. And then we will close out the episode with a solo performance from Tom Verlaine dating to November 27th, 1997 at the Avery Fisher Hall in New York, New York. This beautiful piece, I think, uh, ties nicely together what I've been putting out with this show in recent years, as well as the spirit of so much music that I love. And I think it is a, a fitting way to close this episode fitting way to say goodbye to Tom and assure you that I will be back soon. And until then, be well.